At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we step into the new year, we're turning to the book of James for our message series, Live the Truth. In a culture preaching the power of whatever feels right to you, it's time to set aside positive vibes for a truth you can stand on. Join us as we answer James' call to reject the latest feel-good message for a mature faith. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of James. We're going to be in James chapter 2 this morning. And while you turn there, um, I've got a, a question for you. I've got a picture up on the screen. Let's see if we can get that up there. Does anyone know what movie this is from? Aladdin, right? How many of you guys have seen Aladdin? All right, most, most of you. That's great. If you... If you've never seen Aladdin, then nothing I'm going to say in the next few minutes is going to make sense. Uh, so, like, you can check out for a moment, and then when we get done with this, you can check back in. Um, but for the rest of you, uh, follow me along with this quick exercise, right? So we've got Jafar, we've got Yago, we've got the genie, we've got Aladdin, we've got Jasmine, and then we've got, what's his name? The other guy, the king, the sultan, right? We've got the sultan. Let me ask you this question. As you look at this, this picture, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Think quickly, but think deeply. Who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? All right? So I'm going to name the person. If you think they're the good guy, let, raise your left hand, this hand. If you think they're a good guy, left hand. If you think they're a bad guy, raise your right hand. Okay? All right. The genie. Is Jeannie a good guy or a bad guy? Okay. How about Jasmine? Good woman or bad woman? Okay. How about Iago, the parrot? Okay. All right. All right. What about Jafar? Okay. What about the Sultan? And Aladdin? All right. Okay. Oh, what about the monkey? Really? All right, so we, we watch these movies and we see these stories unfold. And today I just want to push you a little bit. Specifically on the fact of this movie portrays Aladdin as a good guy. But is he really good? Is he really good? Like it starts out and we see that he's, he grows up and he's in poverty and all that. But what does he spend his days doing? Stealing, right? He's a thief, right? He steals bread and yeah, he does all the, some good things with it, gives it to little kids that are hungry and all that, but he's a thief. But it doesn't stop there. Like he deceives the entire kingdom, right? He pretends that he is someone from afar that is a rich person with hopes to deceive not only the sultan, but he, he's hoping to deceive Jasmine, is he a good guy? Is he really? Right, he does. He, so so we, we see these things in our culture and we're like, well, maybe, you know, the ends justify the means, right? In the end, he's doing all these things for love and he wants to do all these good things. And we look at this movie and, and we look and, and we push him up against like Jafar. You know, they were both trying to do the same thing. 
But yet Jafar gets the rap because, you know, he's the bad guy. And I bring this up to you because I think embedded in each one of us, we have a deep desire or we have the ability to constantly make decisions. We make judgments about people's lives based on how we see them. And the writers of this story want you to to see Aladdin as the conquering hero. When in in fact, if we were to uh, uh, take Aladdin's life and push it up against the gospel, we would see there's lots of character flaws here. I mean, even the sultan, right? The sultan is not some innocent man. The sultan is really like a blundering leader that really does not have control of all of his faculties. Because why in the world would he not vet Jafar to the fact of not putting him in second in control, second in control, right? We see some, some lack of character on his part as well. So when we look at this, we're really good at being critical of others and quick to make judgments. And sometimes we make judgments based on outward appearance. But you know and I know that most people are more than what they appear. We we can quickly make judgments about people, but if we ever take the time to really get to know the person, we can see that each one of us has an amazing depth to us. We're not all just one label in our lives, but there's depth to each one of us. And though it's very popular in our world to be critical of others, to be prejudiced towards others, to make judgments about who's good and who's bad and who's right and who's wrong, though it's very popular for us to do that, this is not appropriate for those of us that follow Christ. Christians are not called to judge people based on their outward appearance. We're not called to treat people differently based on how we perceive them, specifically inside the family of God. Right outside of this place, outside of the family of God, everywhere you go, you're constantly being sized up. You're constantly being judged based on uh, the color of your skin, how much money you make, where you shop, what you buy, what kind of car you drive. All of that stuff takes place outside of here. But when you come here, None of that stuff has any place inside of the church. You see, today, as we're going to take a look at our passage today, what we're going to see is that mature faith shows no favoritism. Mature faith shows no favoritism. And what's the beauty about this is that this is the work of Christ in us. Right? You don't have the ability to not judge other people in and of yourself. The only way that you're going to be able to live a life that shows no favoritism is when Christ is at work inside of you. It's the work of the Spirit. And so as we've been walking through the book of James, this is what we've been looking at. Those that give their lives over to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, he begins this mighty work inside of us. And he's working us to mature us towards holiness. And as we've been walking through this series, we've been taking a look at some of the the evidences of those things and what Christ builds inside of us. And so we began by saying, you know, suffering happens in our life as a way of Christ maturing us. And then we took a look as when we go through life, there are times in which we need God's wisdom. We need to know which way 
to go, and God grants us that wisdom. And then last week, we looked at how do we properly deal with our worldly possessions. And this week, I want us to see how, as Christians, this this faith in Christ impacts the way that we treat each other. You see, we're called to live differently, we're called to love differently, and we're called to be in this community that looks different. So let's, I'm going to read the passage this morning all the way through, not all the way through, but we'll go through the first seven verses, and then we'll kind of unpack it together. So James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one that wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones that blaspheme and the honorable name by which you were called? See, what's happening here is that James calls out the Christian practice and says for Christians that we should not be participating in the sin of showing partiality. Another way of saying that is the word partiality there is literally receiving someone according to their face. Right, looking at the outward appearance and making a judgment that we will receive this person, but we will reject this person. Another way of saying that is, is making prejudgments or being prejudiced. Looking at someone and making judgments about them as though this one's good, this one's bad. This one we can love and accept into our community, and this one we are going to not accept into our community. So James, right off, says this has no place. Judging people based on external appearances has no place in the kingdom of God. But you know, before we really unpack this, I want us to get into the context of, of, of what James is talking about in the culture. You know, sometimes we read passages like this and we begin to see the imagery and we take the imagery of scripture and bring it like into right now today. And so we read passages like this, and sometimes we, we think about our own context. We're like, so as a person's coming into our weekly assembly, and as they're sitting in the cafe, or they're in the bookstore, or they're in this building with the worship team, how are we to respond to one another? And sometimes that's good, but in this case, it misses the mark, I think, of what James is getting after. He's talking about the assembly, but the assembly... Uh, we need to answer that question, what is the assembly that he's talking about? And for many, many years, many scholars have, have said that it's in the, in the assembly of the weekly gathering. So when the church gathers together. Well, if that's the case, in the time of James, there weren't big, large buildings for the church to gather in. The church gathered in homes. And they gathered together in homes and they ate meals together and they worshiped together in homes. And so that may be the context of this assembly. But as I was doing a little bit more research, what I found is that many scholars now today believe that the context is not specifically in the worship gathering or the worship assembly, 
But this word assembly is a different context. Based on the the type of language that's used in here, many scholars now believe that uh, the church had adopted practices of the culture and this assembly was a a religious court that would help uh, individuals within the church deal with their their issues. And so the way that this worked is that um, according to like the Roman civil system, this is the same way the Roman civil system worked at the time, is that instead of going to the, the Roman dictators and, and all that stuff, the church decided that what they were going to do is if there were disputes between two members, what they do is they'd have like a religious court. And so the church would send people and they would sit as judges and then the two individuals would come into this place and they would share both of their sides of the story and then the church would mediate um, into that discussion and into that dispute. And so this is the scenario that many scholars now believe is taking place. So the church is sitting in the place of judge and you have two people that come into this place. And so in this Scenario: We have two men that are coming to the church to look to settle the dispute. We see one man come in, and he's described as wearing a gold ring and fine clothing. Now, that is that's an okay translation of what James is talking about, if you, but if you look more uh, clearly into the Greek in which it was written, it more closely says is that James says that this man was wearing gold fingers. Right, so he's literally dripping with gold, not just a ring, but he's got gold fingers so that as he comes into the place, people would know that he is somebody, that he's a man of wealth. And not only did he just have clothes, but his clothes were so fine that they were luminous. And so he comes into this place wearing these fine clothes so that he could distinguish himself. So that people would know that he's a man of wealth and that he's a man of distinction and that he has things. And and he did so so that he hoped that those would judge in his favor because he was a man of means. And then we see the second man come in. The second man comes in and his clothes are unclean. He's poor. He looks defiled. He's polluted and he's full of sinfulness. And then we see how the church in, in this scenario plays out. The man with golden fingers gets elevated and the man that is dirty and filthy and poor gets demoted. He further is his oppressed. He's able to be in the, in the same place, but the tension there is that one gets elevated and one gets demoted. You see here the church has totally adopted the practices of the culture And James is trying to help set the record straight because in this time, what took place is the Roman culture operated out of a patron-client relationship. See, this is the way way it worked. A patron was someone that was rich, someone that had means. And they would, sometimes they would go to a client or a client would come to them, someone that's lesser in means, and they would say, hey, would you... Help me with this endeavor. Would you give me money? And so you have the rich person giving the less rich person money or attention so that uh, that person could live and carry on life. But then there was this exchange that when the patron had a client and whatever their arrangement was, that client was expected to honor the patron and to help promote anything that the patron wanted. And this is the way it worked even in the political culture. 
right? There were patrons that would get clients and then the clients would have to show them, them favor um, or they would support them in all of their endeavors, their legal affairs or their political affairs. So by the time James has written, this way of living with the patron client had been around for over 600 years. And so it was happening in the world and it was finding its way into the church And so when this man dripping in gold, wearing luminous clothes, comes into this Christian legal assembly, there were two possibilities that existed among these Christians that were called to be judges. Either those judges were actual clients of the patron, and so therefore, according to the world, they were responsible for judging in the patron's favor. Right, so rich man comes in, he sees a bunch of people inside the church, and he's like, yep, that's my, that's my client, that's my client, that's my client. I've helped them, I've helped them, I've helped them. Now they owe me. Or the other option for many of these judges is a patron comes in showing how much money he has, and they're like, oh, maybe he can help me with the endeavors that I have. And so they were stuck in this position Forced, according to their culture and the way that their culture operated, they were forced to judge in favor of the patron, not the client. See the problem? You see, when culture invades the church, it always does a disservice to the call of Christ and the way of Christ. Seeing with eyes of flesh always gets us into trouble. But it's important to notice, if we go back to verse one, that what makes this gathering different than any other gathering in the world is who is present. Who is present when Christians get together, whether it's one or two of us get together or three or four or a whole assembly, what's different about our gatherings? It's who's present. Look at me in verse one. He says, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. See, what makes it different about what we do here as what happens out there is that Christ is present with us. Christ is here. Christ is among our midst. And because of that, we're supposed to live like he lived. And we're supposed to follow in his example So my question to you today as we begin to just look at how do we take this, what's taking place, and apply it into our lives. So I want to ask the question, when you look at the world or you look at other people, what do you see? Another way of of, of asking that question is, how do you measure people in your life? Who have you allowed in to be a main influence in your life and who have you separated yourself from? And what, are, what has caused you to make those distinctions? Well, I want us, I think James here gives us two ways in which we can look at measuring people. Two different ways of now that we are believers, how we should see others in light of the brotherhood, in light of our, our Christianness. And I think there are two things. Two truths. The first one is do not measure people by what they can give you. 
Don't measure people by based on what they can give you. The world always measures by outward appearances, what people can give, but God looks differently. And we see this because God says that he has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. The world wants to continually elevate the rich and make the rich richer and the poor poorer. That's just the way it works. Right, because to, in order to become more rich, you need to take advantage of the poor. But that's not the way it's supposed to operate in the world. But that's the way it does operate in the world. I'll never forget when I was in elementary school. One of the things that we loved to do was play on the playground. And there was a time in which we were all together. And we would go from the, the swing sets to the jungle gyms and all that. But everything changed one year when Christopher, for Christmas got a football he brought that football to school and we were all amazed like Christopher you got a football he's like yeah I did my parents really loved me I got a football and so the plan was we were going to play football at, at, at recess but Christopher because it was Christopher's ball Christopher wanted to make all the rules and so Christopher decided that only 10 people could play football. There'd be five on one team and five on the other. And Christopher got to choose who those five people were. And so guess what happened? Everyone wanted to be on Christopher's team. Everyone wanted to be a part of that small group. So guess what they did? Some of them started to do Christopher's homework. They're like, if I do Christopher's homework, then I'll get a chance to play on the football team. Some of them were giving, giving him their, their snacks from their lunch and so that he could be a part of it. And that team was constantly changing. Christopher had like this, this log of who he wanted and how, you, how much you gave him and how much you helped him. And if you were nice to him and if you weren't nice to him, you got on the blacklist and you never got to play football. I was on that list. I wasn't giving this boy my snacks wasn't doing his homework. And there I sat all year on the sideline watching because all my other, not all my other friends, 10 of my other friends got a chance to play and have fun. And they laughed and they joked and they gave each other high fives and they had secret handshakes and all of that stuff. And they'd come in from recess telling stories about you know, how they did this play and that play. And there I was on the outside. That doesn't happen in real life, does it? We're not Christopher, are we? Oh, it's easy for us to call out Christophers. Right, we can see the Christophers in the world, but what if I wanted, what if I told you today that you're Christopher? How would that change your thought process? What if you're living life in such a way where you are Christopher, you're standing there in your life making judgment calls about who can be in and you're waiting to see who does what for you. Right, you can be in if you do this for me. Let us not be so quick to judge the Christophers of the world until we make sure that Christopher's not in our hearts. To misuse someone or improperly judge someone based on who, who they are or what they can give us or they can't give us completely destroys the image of God that's in that person. When we see people as commodities and not as bearers of the image of God, that changes everything. 
not for the better. And he goes on, and James continues to go on, and he says, what makes that matters worse is that those who are actually rich were actually oppressing those inside of the church. He says, are not the rich ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme and the honorable name by which you were called? You see, by showing favoritism in the church, the rich were actually siding with the very class that both historically and at present were persecuting the impoverished believers. So instead of setting against the system, they were participating in a system that was completely tilted against the poor. You see, the poor couldn't afford a patron. They had nothing to give to the patrons, so the patrons would look over the poor and they would seek to get more clients so that they would actually have people that would do their bidding. And so there really were three classes. There was the rich, there were the clients, and then there were the poor. And the poor had nothing to give. They were left outside of society. And anyone can look in this system and say this system is not, there's no justice in this system. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And the people in the middle just get misused and abused. That's the way it works outside. It's not the way it works here. You see, the gospel stands in opposition to a world of injustice. But here's the truth about the gospel. This is what makes Jesus so amazing. This is what makes the church so different is that at the foot of the cross, it's a level playing field. At the foot of the cross, it's a level playing field. It doesn't matter if you drove to church in a Lamborghini or if you had to walk. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what street you live on. It doesn't matter where your kids go to school. It doesn't, none of that stuff matters because at the foot of the cross, we are all equal. You know how we're all equal? We are all sinners. Each one of us have sinned. Each one of us have rebelled against God. And each one of us are in desperate need of salvation. Each one of us cannot save ourselves. And we need Jesus to step in. And Jesus has stepped in. Jesus came from heaven to earth to live a perfect life so that he could die our death in our place. You see, Jesus is the greatest patron of all time. Jesus came not to use and abuse the clients, but Jesus came because he loved the poor and the clients. He came and gave of himself for you and I so that his blood could be shed to forgive us of all sins. And that's what makes this Christian community different. We're all sinners that have been saved by grace. That's it. So it doesn't matter anything other than that. We are needy in need of grace. We are in need to be, to be forgiven, and we have been forgiven. So in this place, if we have shown our faith in Christ, we can look each other in the eye, and we can say we are equal. We're equal. I'm equally as bad as you. I'm equally in need of a savior and I haven't been equally forgiven. And now we are family. Inside of the family of God, we are family. No one of us is greater than the other because of Jesus. 
So mature faith, we don't measure people based on what they can give us. And second of all, we measure people by God's standard. We look at God's standard as the way in which we measure each other. Look at me in verse eight. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the laws of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. For if you committed adultery but do not murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has been shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I want to get, this is really deep, and I'm going to walk through this quickly. But we see two things here. First of all, we see that God's law is the royal law. Right? So, so we got to judge life by the basic standard of the royal law. What that means is that God's law trumps every other law. God's law is more important and has more authority than over any other law. Let me give you an example of, of this in our lives. If you're a parent and you've got kids, you're the authority in your kid's life, right? You tell them what's right, what's wrong, what's good, and what's bad. But also, you share that authority when you send your kids to school, Right? You're, you're sending them to school, and that school then has, is in a place of authority over them and teaching them that two plus two is four and teaching them this is how you write a sentence with punctuation, capital at the start, punctuation at the end. So we're giving authority over to the schools in that. But what happens inside of this context when the school begins teaching things that go against what you're teaching at home? Who has the ultimate authority? You do. You have the royal authority in your home, and that's not been given to you by the state. That's been given to you by God. God says that inside of the home, the, the parents are the primary faith shapers of their kids. They are the authority in the home. And so what we see when those go and come in conflict with one another, what should win? The parents' authority. And in the same way, when we come to Scripture and we come to God's law as he lays it out before us, his always triumphs over everything else. So if it goes against what the government is teaching, it goes against what society is teaching, we always side with that which what God says. And this is what God says. And I want you to see his commands here as it relates to those that are made in the image of God. This is a big deal. The fact that each one of us have equal value and equal standing is because each one of us are bearers of God's image. And whenever that image of God begins to be marred by someone or uh, sought to be made lower than it is, that's when we run the risk of sinning and violating God's law. He gives us two that are two or three laws here that he gives on equal standing. He gives the first one murder. Well, what does murder do? Murder totally devalues the image of God. Right? It says, you are, I'm taking your life because you're no longer worthy of living. You have determined, you have sat as the murderer, as a judge, to say your life is no longer important and I'm taking it. Right? Dismantles the image of God. Committing adultery. 
right? When you commit adultery, that totally mars the image of God. Not only does it step outside of the the one that you're called to in marriage, right? You're called to be co-bearers of that image inside of your marriage. And when you step outside of that, you have just dismantled and taken apart of the image of God in the spouse. And he says in the same way, when you show partiality, you're doing the same thing. You're marring the image of God in someone. You're making them lower than they were called to be. And so he says God's standards. You, you gotta look at God's royal law, right? For if you violate one of the laws, you violated them all. And you sit as a transgressor. Remember that transgressor word? That word transgressor means that you know what the good that you ought to do and you willfully choose to disobey. That's like the worst kind of sin, right? It's not like a sin of omission. It's a sin of commission. It's a sin of willful disobedience against God's law. And he says, you do this, you're guilty of the whole thing. You become a transgressor of the the whole law. So do not commit adultery, but do not commit murder. For if you do, you're, you're marring the image of God in other people. Instead of judging people because of their thoughts or feelings or motives or actions, remember that our thoughts and our feelings and our motives are often evil as well. And as we have received an extreme amount of mercy, therefore we should extend mercy to others. The sin of partiality is a sin that is very prevalent in the world today. People walk around with prejudices all the time. And that sin is just as bad as murdering someone. That sin is just as bad as committing adultery. And so many times our world wants to play it off and say, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. It's just, you know, it's, I'm making jokes about this person because of the color of their skin or from where they're born or their nationality. It's not that bad. It is that bad. It is that bad. According to God's standards, when we devalue someone that's made in the image of God, we are devaluing God It's an offense to God to say as though, God, you made a mistake with this person. This person that you've given life to, you've put on this planet, you've made a mistake, is to shake your fist at God and to say that you are God. You know, I pray as we walk through this passage today that God has opened our eyes because none of us are above this. Each one of us go through our lives and we're constantly making judgments. And my prayer is that specifically inside this body, inside the family of God, that we would seek to mature in our faith, to be honest with ourselves and, to, and be honest and say, God, please forgive me for being judgment, judge, judging people based on outward appearances. God, forgive me for allowing my life circles to be based and surrounded by people that look just like me, live just like me. Instead, let us ask for forgiveness of that, but then seek to live in a way that it constantly is welcoming people in. Because this is what our world desperately needs to see, is the church being the church. You and I welcoming each other in because of our faith in Christ, not because of what we can do for each other outside of here.
So maybe today as we have the worship team come and as we sing this song, this song that we're singing is, is a song of surrender. But I want you to be reminded as we're singing this song, begin by saying, God, I hear your word today. Help me to respond appropriately. And maybe inside of your heart today as you, you are praying, God is going to reveal to you people that you have been prejudiced against. Or maybe you've made judgment calls that weren't uh, in line with your Christian identity. And if God lays that on your heart, then just confess it to him. Confess it and repent. Say, God, I no longer want to live this way, but help me to not show favoritism. Or maybe you're here and you know that you have and you, your step after this is to go, seek and, go and to seek to be reconciled. Go to the person that you have judged improperly and just ask the Lord and ask them to forgive you. But let us not just be hearers of the word, but let us be doers of the word today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words. And Father, though it is very tempting in our world today, to make judgment calls on people's life because of what they can do for us. Father, help remind us that we are all needy people in need of a savior. And we thank you for your sacrifice so that we can be forgiven. And Father, you've given us this church, this family, so that we can live different than the world. And so, Father, I pray in this place that you would forgive us for making judgments about people. Father, forgive us for our prejudices. Father, help us to see our brothers and sisters as you see them. Father, help us to welcome everyone into the body, into the family. And may our church family be a church family that sets the standard for our world. That they would look here and they'd say, man, how is it they're living in unity together? And let our response be because of the blood of Jesus. Now as we sing, continue to have your spirit move. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.